Always stay connected with 99.9% reliable Sky Broadband. Switch your home to Sky Broadband today. See sky.ie for more. I was walking through, there's a beautiful park in Odessa called Shevchenko Park, and I was walking through it towards the, the, the beachfront. It's a lovely kind of, you know, 10, 15 minute walk from the city centre to the beach there. And there were lots of people out in the park. I think I've been texting a friend saying, you know, it's actually been pretty quiet today. And then suddenly three very loud explosions. I kind of scuttled into the trees, basically, uh, thinking maybe this will give me some kind of protection, not really knowing what I was thinking, just kind of get out of the open air. And from my position of kind of semi-cover, I looked around and saw that most people were just still just wandering around, still wandering around, still talking on their phones, still sitting on benches, sipping coffees. And, you know, the, the, the people who were most agitated, other than me, were people whose dogs had kind of scarpered and, and headed off into the middle distance and they had to try and go and kind of calm them down and get them back. Earlier this week, Irish Times journalist Dan McLaughlin was in Odessa, a busy port city in the south of Ukraine. The explosions Dan heard were from missile strikes which hit Odessa airport, just a couple of kilometres away. Scenes like this are playing out all over Ukraine. And, for the millions of people in that country, the sounds of sirens and bomb blasts have become the norm. People very quickly get used to this kind of thing. Or they don't get used to it, but they just kind of um, find a way to live with it, let's say. And when I got to the actual beachfront, there were still lots of people there. There were people fishing, there were kids kind of playing on the boardwalk, there were people sitting having beers in the sunshine. Um, And on the beach, you know, no one's on the beach. And I get to the beach itself and I see that there's a sign, you know, there's a red sign with the skull and crossbones saying that the beach has been mined. So there are all these weird, very weird moments which remind you that war is right there, you know, just very close by. And it can strike in different ways at any time. Today is day 70 of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Thousands of people have already been killed or seriously wounded and billions of euro worth of damage has been caused to the country. But the Ukrainian people have adapted and the war has united the country. I'm Conor Pope and this is In the News from the Irish Times. Today, how two months of war have changed Ukraine. Dan, welcome back to the podcast. Maybe we might start in Odessa, where you've just been and where there have been a number of missile attacks in recent days. Can you tell us about Odessa and tell us what's been happening there? Well, Odessa is a major port on the Black Sea coast of Ukraine. So it's right down in the south. A very important port, a very important place for Ukraine to get goods in and out of. A major problem now, of course, is that the Russian Navy is blocking the port and blocking the the other Black Sea and Azov Sea ports that Ukraine has and Ukraine relies on to bring things in and out. Um, It's a major city in its own right. There are about a million people living there. And it's very well guarded. 
um, because it is seen as a crucial strategic point. It's seen as a point that Russia would like to take if possible. It's being very well protected so far, though, by another city to the east called Mykolaiv, which has taken quite a lot of um, punishment in terms of shelling and missile fire. Russian troops aren't very far away from it. But Mykolaiv is now seen as kind of the shield for Odessa. It's what people in both cities say, and that Russian troops can't really get at Odessa without getting through Mykolaiv. Another interesting point that I should mention is that if you remember probably, what was it, two or three weeks ago now, the warship uh, Moskva, the flagship of the Russian Black Sea fleet, was sunk. It's still disputed. Russia says that it just sank after a mysterious fire, which it hasn't explained. Ukraine says that it hit the ship with two missiles. And the Moskva was seen as being a, a, a very important logistical and potential, potentially, of course, weapons center for a possible Russian attack on Odessa. So by taking out the Moskva, if that's indeed what happened, and the, the Ukrainians say that is what happened, they, they set back any plans that Russia may have had for attacking Odessa directly. Now, in the last few days, we've had three significant missile strikes on Odessa. One of the, the buildings that was hit was an apartment block. Eight people were killed in that strike, including a mother and her three-month-old baby. And then just at the weekend when I was there, there were three very big blasts. And that was a strike on the airport in Odessa. After that, local officials and Russia said that the airport was no longer operable. So, I mean, th there hasn't been any aircraft activity around Odessa for a while now, but still, that's been taken out of action. There was another strike just last night, which killed at least one person. A 15-year-old boy was killed. That's, uh, that's the only fatality that we know about from last night's attack. Does it have any particular symbolism or significance for people both in Ukraine and in Russia? Yeah, it's certainly a place that has very strong connections with Russia, as you say, founded by Catherine the Great. It, it has a very distinctive character, Odessa. There have been lots of stories written about Odessa. Uh, there have lots of films made about Odessa. It's a kind of very freewheeling, very free, very open port city. It's known for being full of interesting characters, you know, people involved in the smuggling trade, people involved in the underworld, people involved in business and, and, uh, and making money in Odessa. It's known to have a very distinctive sense of humour. It's known for, its, for being a very witty city, um, for being a place where people go just to enjoy themselves. It has a beautiful climate. As we said, it's on the Black Sea. Um, and people go there to enjoy themselves. It's known for its seafood. It's known for people going there and having a great time. Something of a hedonistic city as well. So it is remembered very fondly by a lot of Russians, especially slightly older Russians who maybe remember the Soviet days and the films that were made and the books that were written during those Soviet days about Odessa. And so it does have this distinctive character. Do you think that because of that shared history that you've been describing, that maybe Vladimir Putin imagined Odessa was a place that would be receptive to being taken over again by Russia and that maybe they wouldn't have the stomach for a fight? Certainly, I think people in Odessa will tell you this and people who've kind of analysed the war will tell you that this was one of the cities because it's overwhelmingly Russian-speaking, that it does have these strong cultural and historical connections with Russia, that this was a place when people in Russia were planning military operations in Ukraine all the way going back to 2014, Odessa will be one of the places where Russia will have hoped to get a warm welcome, if you like. And there was talk back in 2014 that after the Russian-led separatists took Donetsk and Lugansk, 
in the Donbass region that they would have wanted to push further further west and that Odessa was a place where they would have thought this is kind of traditionally, culturally, linguistically part of the Russian world as Russia sees it. Um, and so they would have hoped that Odessa would go their way. That hasn't proved to be the case. It didn't prove to be the case back in 2014, and it's certainly not the case now. The sense of it being a strongly Ukrainian city, a strongly united city, a city that's determined to defend itself, come what may, is extremely powerful there now. How have the people there adapted to the conflict? And what's the mood like in the city right now? It's a very... I mean, it's very odd on, on the one hand, because over the Easter weekend, usually it would have been packed with tourists. Lots of people would have been coming down. The local bars, restaurants, cafes, hotels would have been packed. The weather's getting nice. People would have been thinking about having their first swim of the year. Instead, of course, it's almost empty. You know, there are hardly any visitors to the city. Restaurants, cafes, hotels are boarded up protecting the glass from any potential shelling or missile fire that may come in. So all that is, is very strange uh, and, and kind of melancholy. But at the same time, the, the sense of unity and defiance there is extremely strong. The volunteer organizations have got together with incredible speed and efficiency and are collecting donations coming from Ukraine and coming from abroad, redirecting them to places on the front line. They're organizing uh, evacuations from cities that are close to the front line or that are even under Russian control. Um, they're getting water, for example, to this city, Mykolaiv, that I mentioned, because Mykolaiv has been without a normal water supply for several weeks now due to Russian sell shelling. So there are, you know, there are, there's one moment that, that I, I noticed, you know, buses were coming in from Mykolaiv dropping off kids who were being evacuated and then volunteers were loading up these buses with bottled water that had been donated by local people and those buses were going straight back to Mykolaiv to deliver this water to the people there. And in Odessa they were saying this is one way of thanking the people of Mykolaiv for being this shield that is protecting Odessa. So on the one hand it's there's a sadness, there's a melancholy, but on the other there's a very, very strong spirit and sense of solidarity which I haven't seen in Odessa before, and even local people, they say, have, they've kind of surprised themselves by how quickly and efficiently they've got together to defend the city and to help, other, help out other Ukrainians as well. And when you were there, did you get a sense, or is it perhaps too difficult to say, that they still fear that they are a target of the Russian invasion? Absolutely. Odessa would be a huge catch for Russia. Now, Russia has indeed had these setbacks. It was forced to, to pull back from Kiev. It's focusing now on the Donbass. But there is, there is no doubt that people there think that Odessa would be very important militarily, economically, and as kind of a prize for, for the Russian military and the Russian leadership to take a city like Odessa, which does have this great resonance in, in Russian society and culture. And also, as we heard the other day from one of the uh, senior gen generals in the in the Russian military when he was talking to other officers, a general called Minikayev, he was saying that Russia does have this intention to push along the southern seaboard of Ukraine and link up Russia, Donbass, Crimea, which we remember was annexed back in 2014, and indeed potentially this area called Transnistria, which is run by Russian-led separatists in Moldova. And that's very close to Odessa. That's only something like 50, 60 miles from Odessa. So when they heard that, they thought, well, I mean, you know, clearly this is, at least in the minds of some generals, part of the grand plan. And people certainly don't feel like 
they're safe. Because as I say, we've had these three significant missile attacks in recent days. And even though the Moskva flagship has been sunk, Russia has plenty of uh, warships, submarines still in the Black Sea that can fire missiles and strike Odessa anytime. Coming up, how Kiev recovered from Russia's attack and what will Vladimir Putin do on May the 9th? Never suffer the buffer again. Always stay connected with 99.9% reliable Sky Broadband. Whether you're streaming on the sofa, gaming in the bedroom, or swiping in the bathroom. Hey! Get out of here! I said swiping. You'll never be without it. Switch your home to 99.9% reliable Sky Broadband. Availability subject to location requires Sky Broadband Ultrafast. For more info, see sky.ie forward slash speeds. 99.9% reliability based on time our broadband network works across our base. I think the last time you were on our podcast, Dan, was in the middle of March. What have you been doing since then? Uh, honestly speaking, I've take, I took a break from Ukraine and I had a rest, <laughs> which was needed after being here for about five weeks at the start of the conflict. But, you know, it's very hard to switch off from it, actually. And I've been sort of, you know, following it from a distance. I know lots of people here. And, and yeah, I mean, in terms of the region, I'm used to covering the bigger region. But of course, it feels like it's pointless to look at anything else at the moment when this is going on in Ukraine. Since I got back, I spent time in Lviv. I met the fiancé of a soldier who'd been killed in battle, a 22-year-old girl who has lost the person she planned to marry this summer and who was absolutely devastated, of course, by that, but was brave enough to tell me about it and share stories and share photographs and things, which was very, very strong and brave of her. And I spoke to another guy at the same time, another local guy, a factory worker who had gone to eastern Ukraine, like the man who was killed, And he had been injured um, just one day apart. Ivan had been killed, and the next day this other guy had been injured by shrapnel. And I think it was an an affecting story for me to write, but also I think it was a powerful one because, you know, these guys are in Western Ukraine, Lviv is seen, and that region is seen as being a safe haven. But they're traveling a thousand kilometers across the country to defend Ukraine in Donbass. One of them lost his life and the other one had severe injuries. But he said, look, as long as I'm through with this rehabilitation, which he didn't think much of and called it kind of mumbo jumbo, I'm going to be back. I'm going to be back on the front line and fighting. How is the mood there now? Because you had that that much needed break. So you got a sense of of distance maybe from from the conflict. And now you're back in Kiev. What, what differences have you noticed in terms of that defiance? Are people still resolute? Or are they still determined to, to withstand the assault? Yeah, I think that there, there is absolutely no sign that that feeling is diminishing. If anything, I think it's getting stronger because they saw um, the incredible effort that the, the, the Ukrainian military put in to drive Russian forces away from Kiev, and they're just looking ahead to victory. I mean, it's it's interesting that there's this there's kind of a sense in them. I think that maybe it's because they feel they have no other choice. You know, they can't stop doing this because there is nowhere to retreat to. There, this is their home. They can't give it up. They're determined not to give it up, and they're ready to do whatever it is to help this effort. So it's been an incredibly unifying experience for Ukrainians. I think. And also, just one last thing, I would say there was always kind of a sense that, you know, Western Ukraine was extremely patriotic 
you know, the, the sort of heartland of Ukrainian language and culture and so on. And people in Western Ukraine would think, well, you know, in the East, okay, they're fine, it's still Ukraine, but they're a little bit kind of, they have this pro-Russian sentiment. For people in Western Ukraine now seeing how people in cities like Kharkiv, places like Mykolaiv, Kherson, Odessa, places where the, the population is largely Russian-speaking, for them to see how those cities with stronger links to Russia, are fighting so desperately to stay part of Ukraine and to defend Ukraine, that has also been a very, very powerful and special thing for them. That's definitely brought the country together. And um, I get the impression that that will be a, a lasting and an absolutely transformative experience for the country. And of course, the war in many ways has moved in a, in a very significant way to the east. What are the latest developments that you're hearing coming out of the Donbass? Well, I mean, it's extremely heavy shelling along a very long front line of something like 500 kilometers, all the way from down, you know, close to Mariupol, all the way through the Donbass, and then the region to the north around Kharkiv, which is the, the second city in Ukraine. These places are under very, very severe shelling. They're still trying, the Ukrainians are still trying to evacuate people from these places every day. But actually, when you look at the big picture, this is what Ukraine says, and it's also what Western governments and intelligence agencies are saying. Russia's been focusing huge firepower in these areas now for at least, for what, two, three weeks, I think. And there haven't been any major gains. You know, they're may, they're, they may be taking a town or they're taking a village, but Ukraine says this is, these are basically tactical retreats. We're getting our forces out, we're regrouping, and we're defending again. And at the same time, they're trying to hit these Russian supply lines and hit these Russian artillery units from the sides and in ambushes using the weapons that are coming in from the West. These um, portable anti-tank missiles that they're getting from several countries now, not just the United States and Britain. So Russia is focusing huge firepower in that area. That's clearly the aim. Russia seems to have an eye on May the 9th, which is an enormous holiday in Russia. May the 9th, Victory Day, when Russia marks victory over the Nazis in the Second World War. The parade across, the huge military parade across Red Square that we've all seen, that's coming up you know, in a week's time. Putin will be there and he will, one would imagine, want to claim some kind of major victory at that point. But he hasn't really got it in the Donbass. He definitely didn't have it in Kiev. He's been forced away from here. He hasn't managed to take Kharkiv. Um, so we'll have to see how it plays out. But it doesn't look like at the moment there are going to be major gains for the Russian side in Donbass before May the 9th. Um, but the fighting there is certainly severe. Lots of casualties on both sides. Neither side is releasing casualty numbers. Um, but that's, that's clearly the, where the focus is now. And it will be, I think, for the foreseeable future. And like, I know you've travelled extensively across the Donbass. What's it like? Because one of the narratives that we're getting from the Kremlin is that the people of the Donbass would welcome this special military operation as it's characterised. Is there any truth to that? as far as you're aware? There's very little truth to that, I think. I was there in 2014 when, you know, the Russia under the cover of these proxy militias, which Russia armed and created, Russian forces came over the border and backed them up. At that point, you know, there were people who would say, we just want peace, you know? Whether it's peace with the, in Ukraine or peace in Russia, just give us peace. But I would say, and I, and I actually did a story on this back in late January, early February, when it looked like this conflict was building, I went back to some of the towns in the Donbass, which for several months in 2014 were held by these Russian-led separatists, and which Ukraine then took back after about 10 weeks under occupation. And I went back to them, and at this point, I remember Putin was saying, 
the people in Donbass are just waiting for us to come and save them. I went back so to, to just to ask people there, in towns like Kramatorsk and Slobyansk, you were under the control of these Russian-led separatists for a while. Do you want that life again? And, you, you know, to a man and woman, people said, we remember that as being a lawless, terrifying time. We had people on checkpoints, you had no idea who they were. They were drinking, they'd been released from jail and given a gun and put on a checkpoint. It was a completely lawless time when anything could happen to you. When people disappeared, when no one could, you know, go out to work for a day and know that they would safely come back to their homes at night. So they said, we don't want any of that. And they have seen what's happened to Donetsk and Lugansk, the two main cities in the east that have been under this Russian proxy control for eight years. They've seen them fall into deep poverty, deep international isolation. And they've said, you know, we don't want, we don't want any of that. I mean, I think there is, there is still, and people told me this in Odessa as well, there is still a certain chunk of people who are, let's say, kind of passive about what happens. And they still have that feeling that, okay, whether it's Ukraine, whether it's Russia, just give us peace. But I think that that contingent all across eastern and southern Ukraine is much, much smaller than it was. And it's getting smaller all the time with every attack on a civilian building and every atrocity that we hear about in places like Bucha and Irpin outside of Kiev. All these things, all these things that are coming out from the southeast, from here around Kiev, are making people, I think, more and more strongly feel like we need to defend Ukraine, we need to stay under Ukrainian control and not let the so-called Russian world come back here. And we might finish, Dan, on May the 9th. There has been some speculation that it might be used as an opportunity to announce a further escalation of the war. Now, obviously, we can't say for sure that's going to happen. But do you get a sense that that might be something that's coming down the tracks? As we said there, it's, it's, it's only officially, from the Russian point of view, a military, a special military operation at the moment. There is some speculation that Putin will use it to declare war, a full war with Ukraine. Um, which would allow him to do certain things like mobilize conscripts, like um, uh, sort of reorient, reorientate the Russian economy towards, uh, towards uh, military production and so on. But again, I think there's kind of a balancing act that, that, that Putin has to take and the, and the people around him have to take into account. How popular will this war be if, you know, young men across Russia are being... Uh, called up to potentially go and fight in Ukraine, you know, and that suddenly makes it a very, very real prospect for families all over Russia. And even though, you know, at the moment we don't see major signs of discontent in Russia or dissent towards the war, that might be the kind of thing um, that would potentially be some kind of tipping point and could threaten, um, if not the popularity of this war, because we just don't really know how popular it is, at least people's acquiescence to the war in Russia. So um, let's see. We'll find out more in a week's time. Dan, thanks very much for talking to us. That's it for today. This episode of In the News was produced by Declan Conlon and Suzanne Brennan. We'll be back on Friday. <laughs>